We're going to be in Acts chapter 4 tonight. If you are there, say, I'm here. If you are new or visiting with us this evening, we are in a series called Church on Fire. Pastor Rob shared last week on the power of the early church, the power of the Holy Spirit and the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And tonight we are going to look at the power of prayer in Acts chapter 4. Does that sound good? Are you guys there? Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23, we're going to read, pray, and get into it. This is God's word, and it says, beginning in verse 23, when they were released, speaking of Peter and John, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported that the chief priests and the elders had said to them, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. Everyone say, Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Verse 27, for truly... In this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord... Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Everyone say boldness. Boldness. To speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray one more time. Lord Jesus, as we open up your word again, Lord, we recognize your presence here. And we pray, Jesus, that you would speak by your word and through your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would give us boldness. Boldness to represent you. Boldness to be witnesses for you. And Jesus, would you convince us? Would you persuade us by your word and by your spirit to deepen our prayer life with you? To be more dependent on prayer for the power that you have given us access to. Jesus, persuade us by your word tonight. We invite you here and in your name we pray. Amen. Well, we're in our series, Church on Fire. And like I mentioned last week, we talked about the power of the Holy Spirit, that the power of the Holy Spirit was the power of the early church. As we're reading the book of Acts and we're seeing these incredible works of the early church, it is all by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, your Bible might say Acts of the Apostles there on the front page, but many Bible commentators have rightly said this is really the Acts of the Holy Spirit because it is the Holy Spirit moving and working through the apostles and the early church to further the gospel and the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. It's all by the power of the Holy Spirit. But what goes hand in hand with the power of the Holy Spirit is the power of prayer. Prayer is essential, was essential to the early church and it must be essential in our lives today. Now, I have to confess to you, 
If there is one area of my relationship with God that I am discontent with, it is my prayer life. To be honest, it's my prayer life. I desire to be a man of prayer. I desire to pray more. I desire to deepen and strengthen my prayer life. But the thing is with prayer is it takes work. It's a discipline. It takes effort. It takes time to strengthen that muscle of prayer. Therefore, I believe all of us should have a desire to deepen and strengthen our prayer life. But it does take work. In fact, the apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 4 verse 12 says this. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bond servant of Christ, greets you always laboring. Everyone say laboring laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Prayer takes work. Prayer is a labor, but what is birthed by the Holy Spirit in the place of prayer is power. Prayer bursts power by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. There's a direct link between seeing the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life and your prayer life. There's a direct link between seeing that power and the time that we spend in prayer. Prayer is the avenue, the road, or the highway that the Holy Spirit drives power into our life. So the power of prayer. Tonight we're going to see three observations of powerful prayer from our text today. First, we're going to see the direction of their prayer, speaking of the early church, the devotion of their prayer, and the dependency of their prayer. But before we do that, let's first paint a picture of what is going on here in Acts chapter 4. This is just days after the account in at Pentecost that we looked at last week, where the early church was gathered together, this group of believers, and they were praying. And while they were praying and waiting for the promise of the power from on high that Jesus had promised them as he was ascending into heaven, as they waited there for 10 days in a posture of prayer, the Holy Spirit came down upon them on the day of Pentecost, and it was climactic. There was the birth of what we call the church, the called out, the followers of Jesus. They begin to speak in various language, and the gospel is going forth in such power there on that day on Pentecost that Peter who was only literally days before denying Jesus to a little girl now he is passionately preaching the gospel and 3,000 people are added to the church this is literally dynamic there is power going out from the early church from the apostles from the believers and then as after this, this great sermon that Peter gives, all these people come to the Lord. Then we see Peter and John actually go to the temple and on their way to the temple to go and worship God. They're going through the gate of beautiful where there's a lame man. And as they're walking by this lame man, this guy asks for money and they end up healing this man. And as he's healed, I mean, this would have been just a miraculous moment, obviously, but it was a very public miracle. Everyone's seeing what's going on. This man had 
been lame for 40 years. And here he is. He's now healed. He's jumping around. They go into the temple area and Peter goes and he delivers another sermon. And now we read that the church grows to 5,000 people. So another 2,000 people get saved after this second sermon. But the religious leaders are not happy. The Sadducees and the chief priests and the religious officials, they are furious at what is going on. They're furious that these Jesus followers are now all of a sudden emboldened. And literally there are thousands of people that are being baptized and believing in the name of Jesus. And this miracle of this layman creates all this controversy among the people. And the religious officials are furious. So much so that they actually grab Peter and John and they throw them into jail. They didn't have much reason to, except that this man was miraculously delivered. But they throw them into jail. And there they are in jail. And Peter's emboldened in jail. They see that these men had been with Jesus. We read in Acts chapter 4, which is one of the coolest verses in the books of Acts. They recognize, man, there's something different about these disciples now. Something has happened. They're emboldened to the chief priests. But now this is the time. It's the first time that we read in the book of Acts that they are experiencing great opposition. This is, in a way, the first trial of the early church. After these great sermons and the healing of this man, now all the religious officials are opposing Peter, John, and the early believers, and they throw them into jail. And now, at this point, I want you to enter into this story. Because as we look at this story in Acts chapter 4, and we're going to see these, these observations of powerful prayer, there's great application to your life. And you have to recognize here that the moment that they began praying was after great opposition. And if you haven't figured it out by now, as you enter into the story, when you begin to get on fire for Jesus, or maybe even last week you prayed for the baptism of the Holy Spirit or a refilling of the Holy Spirit, whenever we take a step forward in our relationship with God, we're always met with opposition. This is the case here for the early church. They're met with opposition. But what does it drive them to? It drives them to prayer. If you have been trying to follow Jesus, you have been trying to get your life right with God. You've been making steps to say, Jesus, I want you to have all of my life. I'm laying my life down for you. Would you fill me with your spirit? You must expect opposition. And when you meet opposition, it must drive us to our knees in prayer. It was Oswald Chambers who said this. He said, we tend to use prayer as a last resort, but God wants it to be our first line of defense. We pray when there's nothing else we can do, but God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. But oftentimes it's not our first resort. It's our last resort. It's not our first response. It's our last response. Here we see though that prayer was the first response of the early church. And man, if you haven't been there already, time will, time will tell. We'll learn. You'll learn very quickly when you're met with opposition. You might go and you might try to figure out or ask some people for advice or go to your pastor and receive prayer or call a friend or what have you. But time will tell. Eventually, you'll fall on your knees. And it's much 
more effective to go to the place of prayer first. This was the early church. As they're met with opposition, the first resort was to go to a place of prayer. They were met with opposition and they go to prayer. And the first thing I want you to notice about this prayer is the direction of their prayer. Let's read again there in verse 24. After Peter and John brought the news of what happened, they come, they pray together. Verse 24, we read, They heard it and they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Here we read that together, corporately, they come together and they're agreeing in unison in prayer. And the direction of their prayer is to the sovereign Lord. They're praying to God. He's the first part of their prayer. He's in, they're inviting him in immediately and praying directly to their sovereign Lord. Now, this word Lord is different from the normal word used for Lord throughout the New Testament. It's the Greek word despotes, which means master with supreme authority. So in the face of opposition, they are recognizing the reality that God is the one who holds ultimate authority. The religious officials were trying to exercise authority onto them. And now they're praying to their sovereign Lord, understanding, recognizing, identifying that he's the one that holds supreme authority. And this is why prayer can be so powerful. Because what prayer has the ability to do is it has the ability to change our perspective. Our perspective from a big problem to a bigger God. They had a big problem in front of them as all the religious officials were opposing them. But the first thing that they do in prayer is they direct their attention to their sovereign Lord, the creator of the heavens and the earth, and they see that their God is bigger than their Problem. Now, I know this point may seem obvious and it's small that they're directing their prayer to the Lord. But how often do we pray and we don't actually spend time praising the Lord before we pray? Sometimes we just run out of the gates going, God, help me in this situation and do this great miracle and X, Y and Z. We need I need this from you, A, B and C, Lord. Would you do that? So often we can have the tendency when we're met with opposition to go straight for asking for deliverance or asking something for the Lord. But rather than directing their attention right away to their problem and the horizontal, they get their eyes on the vertical right away through the gates of prayer. They're getting their eyes on Jesus and praising him for who he is. Prayer can change our perspective. The psalmist prayed like this in Psalm 42, 11, when we read, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. When the psalmist was met with opposition, the first thing he does is there he's praising God for who he is. He's going to the vertical. He's cast down in one breath and in the next breath, he's praising God for who he is. As we praise God for who he is, in prayer, it changes our perspective. In fact, this is the way that Jesus taught the disciples to pray and the disciples prayer or the Lord's prayer there in Matthew chapter six. Jesus said this, he taught them how to pray saying, our father in heaven, hallowed be 
Thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The first part, the first segment of that prayer wasn't petition asking for something. The first part of the prayer that Jesus teaches us how to prayer is first praise. Our Father in heaven, holy, hallowed is your name. Your will be done. It's getting our direction initially onto Jesus. And there's great, a great, great model there for us. As we spend time in prayer, as we're trying to strengthen our prayer muscle, before you go straight into interceding for someone else, before you go straight into petitioning something from God, spend time just praising God for who he is. This is the direction of their prayer. It's up toward Jesus, praising him for who he is. They're lifting their eyes off of their situation and onto God, simply praising him. For who he is. The second thing I want you to notice in this prayer is the devotion of their prayer here in verses 25 through 28. There is an urgency and a passion to their prayer. In this prayer, we're, we're going to see their devotion to God's word, their devotion to God's will, and their devotion to God's way. They're devoted, they are passionate, they are energetic in prayer, and they are firstly devoted to God's word. Notice there in verse 25, they are remembering and they are quoting Psalm chapter 2. Let's read it again here in verse 25. It says, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit... Why do the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The king of earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Here, as they're gathered together, They first direct their prayer up to God. They're praying to the sovereign Lord, the creator of the heavens and the earth. They're changing their perspective off their problem onto God. And then they go into literally praying and quoting scripture. It shows their devotion to God's word. Here they're literally quoting Psalm chapter 2. They're quoting Psalm chapter 2 and praying it over their situation. Now the writer of this Psalm, Dave, is praying prophetically how the nations will rage against the Messiah, against the anointed one. That is against Jesus. So they're recognizing by understanding their devotion to the scriptures, their devotion to God's word, that this Psalm is literally prophetically happening now in their situation as these rulers of the kings of that area, those that were exercising authority over that area, were literally going against Jesus and against the early believers. So they're, they're interpreting Psalm chapter 2 by then saying, this psalm, this scripture is being fulfilled prophetically in this city, verse 27, as these were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. And they go on to name Herod and Pontius Pilate and those different rulers as the rulers that were there mentioned in Psalm chapter 2. But what's the point? The point is this, is that they were praying scripture and it shows their devotion to God's word. And this is important for us to remember when we pray. There's power in praying scripture when we're praying to God. 
In fact, as we look at all the Old Testament examples of prayer, this is a fun little thing to do in your own private study. If you look at all the old moments or in the Old Testament where people are praying, all of their prayers are linked to a prophetic promise that was given by God. They're linked to a prophetic promise given by God. In fact, the first time that we find prayer in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 4, verse 26. It says this. It's going in the genealogy there in Genesis chapter 4, and it says, To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. In other words, they began to pray. Now, can you guys geek out with me? This is Wednesday night, midweek Bible study. Can you guys handle this? This is, this is fun. Okay, so Seth, you've got, you've got Adam and Eve. You've got the fall. And during the fall, sin enters into the picture. And then what does Jesus or what does God g- come in? He comes and he pursues them. And then he lays out the curse. And there we're given Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right? There's going to be a seed that's going to come and it's going to crush the head of the serpent. It was a promise given by God to Adam and Eve. People knew this promise. That's why when Adam and Eve had Abel and Cain, Eve and Adam seemed to be under the impression that Abel, like this, this prophetic promise from God that their seed would crush the head of the serpent was literally going to be lived out prophetically through Abel. That's why it's such a big deal when Cain kills Abel. And then it's like, oh man, the whole promise prophetically of what was going to happen isn't going to happen anymore because Cain had killed the firstborn child has killed Abel. And so it was this big deal. But then Adam and Eve give birth to another son. That son is Seth. And from the lineage of Seth would come the Messiah. So this, this promise that was given in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is given and now it's it's everyone understands that it's going to come through the lineage of Seth because Adam and Eve had another kid. Are you guys following? So then Seth has a son named Enosh. Enosh means man, it means mortal. And they're under the impression that Enosh now might be the seed that was promised by God in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. And everyone begins to call upon the name of the Lord. It seems as if they're calling upon the name of the Lord of the promise given in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. They're looking at Seth and looking at Enosh and saying, God, you promised that from the seed would come this snake crusher that was going to crush the serpent's head come and bring this promise to fruition. And so the first time we see prayer here in Genesis chapter 4 verse 26 is directly linked to a promise given from God in the Garden of Eden. They're praying that the promises would be fulfilled. And it literally creates what many Bible scholars say, the first revival. Up until that point, humanity was on a decline, but now they're praying and calling upon the name of the Lord. And there's like hope in the air that God is going to fulfill his promise. Isn't that cool? What's the point? The point is this. All throughout the Old Testament scriptures, prayer was used to ask God to fulfill the promises that he was given. Therefore, prayer was based upon God's word that was given to his people. Are you guys following? All of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the moments where they see, we find them praying, they're praying, God, would you do what you said you were going to do? God, would you give me that land? Would you give me that son? Would you do these things? Their prayers were directly linked to God's 
promises all throughout the Old Testament scriptures. And the application there for us is the greater we understand God's word, the more enriched our prayer life is going to be and our faith is going to be emboldened as we're asking God to do the things that he has promised us that he would do. So they were devoted to the word. They were devoted to the word in prayer. If you want to see your prayer life enriched, you must deepen your understanding of God's word. Prayer all throughout the Old Testament scriptures was used to ask God to fulfill the promises that he had given them. The second thing we see when it comes to the devotion of their prayer is that they were devoted to God's word, but they are also devoted to God's way. Notice there in verse 28, they say, do whatever your hand and your plan is. Your hand and your plan. They were devoted to God's way. They wanted their prayer to be answered according to God's way, not their way. How often can we say the same thing? How often do we pray that we're like, God, I really want you to do it this way. We ask God for something and we're like, God, this is exactly what I want from you and this is exactly how you want to do it. But God rarely ever does things in that way. He answers prayer according to his way. The sooner we get that dialed in, the easier it's going to be for us as we surrender and submit our way to him. There's some classic examples, you know, God, I pray that you bring me that girl and she comes into my life and you're going to tell me exactly who she is. And then the guy like literally doesn't ever talk to a girl and they just expect like God's going to miraculously bring a girl to him or the person that prays for a job, but that sits on the couch all day and doesn't go and apply for jobs. They're like, God, I want you to do it my way. Have the person and the company call me. Those are silly examples, but they're examples to show how often we pray for things and we're asking God to do it our way and not his way. That was not the case here in Acts chapter four for the early church. They were devoted to God's way. They're saying, God, would you do this according to whatever your hand and your plan is? In other words, would you do it according to your way? The third thing we see is they're devoted to God's word, God's way, and God's will. It says there at the end of verse 28, predestined to take place. They were asking God to do it not only his way, but in his will, which implies one thing that none of us like, it's in his time. We always want God to answer prayer on our timetables, but that's rarely ever the case. He's got his way. He's got his will. They're praying that it would take place according, predestined to take place according to his will. Which brings us to a great point of application that the purpose of prayer isn't to get our will done. It's to get God's will done in us. A lot of people pray. I've got family members that are not Christians that when bad things happen, they tell me that they're praying for me. Listen, that's real sweet and all, but that doesn't mean absolutely anything when their prayer isn't directed to the sovereign Lord, to the gods who created the heavens and the earth, and when they're praying what they want. But the same thing is when we pray and we're just praying and treating God like he's a magical genie in a box or in a lamp and we're asking God to do A, B, or C, X, Y, and Z for us. No, it only really works or is powerful when we are submitting and surrendering ourselves to God. 
Again, how did Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The purpose of prayer isn't to get our will to be done. It's to get God's will to be done in us. Warren Wearsby said this. He said, true prayer is not telling God what to do, but asking God to do his will in us and through us. That's the purpose of prayer. To get our heart aligned with God, not to get God's heart aligned with us. It's to get our ways aligned with God's ways, our will aligned with God's will, not the other way around. But so often, again, when we're really honest, we're really truthful, we fall into trying to ask things from God to do it according to our way and our will and our timetable. And so we see their devotion to God's word, their devotion to God's way, their devotion to God's will. This is all seen in their prayer to God. And the last observation I want you to know is their dependency of their prayer. The dependency of their prayer. Read with me again verse 29. It says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant. Notice, throughout this entire prayer, do you see the one thing they're asking for? Is boldness. The one thing they're asking for is boldness and they're being completely dependent upon God's hand upon his ability to heal, upon his ability to perform signs and wonders, all by his holy servant, Jesus. They're being completely dependent upon him and not themselves. But notice the request. It's a prayer for boldness. Remember, they're in the face of opposition. The religious leaders have imprisoned Peter and John. They've released them now, but they are out to get the early church. And they do not pray for escape. They pray for empowerment. They do not pray that God turns off the dark. They pray that God turns up the light in a sense. They're praying that God does a work in them, not in a work out there. But do you see the difference there? So often when we face opposition, we pray, God, get me out of this problem. God, make this stop. Or something happens where you say, God, we pray for them that you would deal in their hearts and in their ways. But that's not the heart and the attitude here of the prayer of the early church. They're saying, God, would you work in us? Not work in the religious leaders, but would you embolden us? Would you empower us? Would you pour your spirit upon us? Their, their, their prayer is directed now inward toward them, not simply the problems out there, but God, would you strengthen me on the inside? What if we started changing our prayers in that way? What if we as a church, instead of saying, God, would you change the world, continue to pray, God, would you change me, revive me, fill me afresh with the Holy Spirit, so then we can be the witness that God called us to be in the world and to be a living testimony, a living epistle to the world around us. But so often we pray, God, the problem's out there, fix it out there. And we neglect the problems that are within us and the areas in our life where our affection toward Jesus has grown cold or grown idle and grown apathetic. And listen, I'm preaching to myself. These are areas in my life I'm praying to the Lord and the Lord's convicting me. No, Tyler, I want to do a work in you. 
But I find it so fascinating and what a great model here that the first prayer of the early church after they began is God not to do the not to work out there, but to work in us. Not to escape us from trouble or bring escape from trouble, but to bring empowerment within. They were being completely dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit in prayer. They were asking for power. And what was the result? The result, verse 31, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Literally, an earthquake happens. And God answers their prayer and they are filled with boldness and they go out to further the gospel and the kingdom of God from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the world. This was the effect. This was the result of their prayer. And I don't got a slide for this one, but we've seen the direction of God's prayer. We've seen the devotion of their prayer. We've seen the dependency of their prayer. Now I want you to understand the difference between Old Testament prayer and New Testament prayer. Because I think this is essential in understanding what's going on here in Acts chapter 4. When people prayed in the Old Testament, did you see earthquakes happening? When I read the scriptures, I don't see many earthquakes happening when the Old Testament saints are praying. Why? Because as we already mentioned, the purpose of prayer in the Old Testament was to pray for deliverance and pray for God to fulfill His promises. We see that all throughout the Old Testament saints, from Hannah praying for her barren womb, to Sarah praying, to Abraham praying, to Elijah praying, to Elisha praying. They're praying that God would fulfill the messianic promises, the covenantal promises that he had given to them. Their prayers were rooted firmly in those promises, which is great application to us. But there is something now different about the way that we pray and the purpose of prayer for New Testament saints. And it's all because of the cross. It's all because of Jesus. Do you remember the day that Christ was crucified on Calvary? What happened? There was a great sign that happened as he was being crucified. As he'd given up and yielded his spirit to the Father, we read there in the scriptures that the temple veil was torn from top to bottom, symbolizing a sign that we now have access into the very presence of God. This is access into the presence of God that no saints in the past had been given access to. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, he's now seated upon the throne in heaven, seated on high as our great high priest, as the mediator for us. And Hebrews chapter 4 says, because of the cross, because Christ has been crucified, Hebrews chapter 4 says, we then have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us then hold fast our confession. And it goes on to say, you know the verse well, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because of the cross, because of the resurrection, Because Jesus as our high priest, 
as our mediator, the mediator between God and man, the God man passed through the heavens as a resurrected king, as a resurrected man. He seated upon the throne and because all of our sin had been placed on him and he'd conquered the sin and the grave. Now we can enter into the very throne room of grace when we are in need. And when we do, we find mercy and grace in our time of need. So prayer in the Old Testament was praying for deliverance. It was praying that God would fulfill his promises. That's certainly true in the New Testament. But prayer is also now given to us that we would draw near to the very presence of God. And that is something that the Old Testament's saints did not have. Prayer is now a meeting place for us and the God who created the heavens and the earth. And as a meeting place between us and God, when God then meets us in prayer, powerful things can happen because God is present among us. In fact, Hebrews chapter 7 says this, He now lives forever, speaking there in the throne, to intercede with God on their behalf. Now, because Jesus, as our high priest and mediator, when we enter into the throne room of grace as we're praying to Him, He is interceding. Therefore, He is literally repeating or recognizing or identifying those prayers and He's interceding to God the Father there in heavens. Our prayers are going directly to Him, through Him, and into God's throne. This is all because of the work of Jesus. So get this. In the Old Testament... The meeting place with God was the temple in which you would experience an encounter, a high priest and a mediator. But in the New Testament, our meeting place with God is prayer in which our high priest and our mediator has passed through the heavens and we get to now enter into his throne of grace and he is then interceding for us. This is why powerful things can happen when we pray as New Testament saints. Because the Holy Spirit now lives within us. We are now the living temple of the living God. And when we meet with God in prayer, as we draw near to God, He draws near to us and powerful things can happen. God can manifest Himself in different ways. This is why Billy Graham said this. He said, a prayerless Christian is a powerless Christian. It's been said before, one of the most convicting statements I've probably ever read, and I come to very often, is prayerlessness is really pride. When we don't pray, it's a form of pride because we're relying on our own strength and our own power. But when we pray, we are being dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit. We're meeting with God and saying, God, we need you to show up in my life because I am unable, I am do not have the power to see this through. So a prayerless Christian is a powerless Christian, but a prayerful Christian is a powerful Christian. Why? Because it's not us who has the power. It's as we enter into prayer, we're meeting with God and He gives us the power. That's why we see throughout the early church, when they pray, cool things happen. Let me give you one last one. It's in Acts chapter 16. We'll close here tonight. In Acts chapter 16, we find Paul and Silas. They've met opposition again. You probably know the story well. They're in prison. 
Paul and Silas, they're praying and they're singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Paul and Silas in prison met with opposition. What do they do? Their first resort, they're praying. They're singing spiritual hymns, spiritual songs, singing worship. What we do here every single time we gather together, worship is prayer. We're praying. Hopefully you're not worshiping for the person next to you to listen. Hopefully you're not worshiping as an act or demonstration of something. No, the reason we worship is we're praying to God. We're singing spiritual hymns to God. And what happens when Paul and Silas are there praying? They're singing spiritual songs. It's a meeting place with God. And the God of the heavens and the earth shows up and he manifests himself in a great earthquake and man bonds are unbroken. They experience deliverance. And can I persuade you or really allow the scriptures by the power of the Holy Spirit to persuade you that God can manifest himself in powerful ways as we pray? The whole point of tonight, the whole point of this series is that we would sincerely come before God and say, God, There might be areas in my life where I've grown cold. There might be areas in my life where I've grown apathetic and idle toward you. And I'm coming and I'm asking that God, you would lit that flame within me, that we would become a church on fire, that we would have a dependency upon the Holy Spirit, that our prayer life would be strengthened and that we would see God move. Do you want to see God move, church? That's our heart. That's our prayer. That's our desire. How's it going to happen? It's going to happen as we meet with God in prayer. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the cross and your resurrection that through you, God, we can enter into a throne of grace and experience mercy and help in our time of need. But Jesus, we pray right now, we draw near to you Lord, that's the promise you've given us. As we draw near to you, you'll draw near to us. So Jesus, we're praying, we're asking, we're coming before you, we're drawing near. And we pray, Lord, that you would lit that flame within us. We pray, God, that you would do that revival in us, Lord, that you would work in us, that you would embolden us, that you would strengthen us, that we would be a church on fire, a church dependent upon you, for your will to be done, for your way to be done here in Vista, here in Calvary Vista, as it is in heaven. Jesus, would you forgive us of the areas in our life where we've grown idle, where we've grown dull, where we've, we've, had, we've had cotton in our ears and we can't hear what you're desiring to speak to us. Lord, we forgive us for, for the idols of comfort and the idols of pleasure and the idols of self. And we lay those things down before you. And we ask Jesus, that you would work powerfully in us and among us. We pray, God, that you would bring a great work here in our midst, Jesus. We pray, Lord, that prodigals would come home. We pray that families would be restored. We pray that marriages would be strengthened. God, we pray that you would work. Lord, we are dependent upon you. We confess apart from you, we can do no good thing. And we ask, Jesus, that you would deepen our need for you, that you would make us aware of our need, that you would strengthen our prayer life and that you would continue to do great things as you have done 
for so many years. Jesus, we ask these things in your name. Amen.